looking back, and I'm not saying history is always a bona fide indicator. It's not. But one would assume, based on track record and the teams that have had success in the past making a transition, having a long-established, long-tenured head coach as you make that transition might lead to better success as you transition to a new league. Hello, welcome to Always College Football. Today is a Friday edition of the show, and we look forward to giving you more college football content here as we put a bow on the first week without any football, knowing that we're five days removed from the Super Bowl. We're not stopping here, though. We'll get into some draft prep. We'll get into some stuff like that, but we're not there right now. We're still living in the college football world because there's still coordinators that are being hired at certain places. We're going to go through a few, including coordinator moves that have gone down in South Bend, Indiana, in Athens, Georgia, and then, of course, down in Coral Gables, Miami, where we need to kind of take a peek and see, all right, who is this new offensive coordinator, Shannon Dawson? I'll tell you why I think each one of these three hires has a chance to be really good, but I will be honest with you. There are a couple question marks around each of the three. And with so much conversation this week and last week about Texas and Oklahoma leaving the Big 12 for the SEC and knowing that USC and UCLA are ultimately going to be ending up at the Big 10 in 2024, we figured we'd look back at some teams that have made that transition in the past. Some have found great success. Some have really struggled to find their footing in their new league. And we found one thing that did appear to be a bit of a commonality between the teams that have had success and the teams that have maybe be, maybe kind of stubbed their toe along the way. So we're going to get to all of that, maybe answer a mailbag question or two as well. So let's not waste any time. Let's get down to the transition from one league to the other and why you might or might not have success right now as we talk about it. All right, as we know, college football is in a constant state of transition. And this is not exclusive to the 21st century. We've had teams that have been moving for greener pastures for quite some time. It's almost a tradition like any, any, unlike any other. I mean, it's really all over the place. I mean, this goes back as far as to when, you know, Penn State was moving and this team was moving and these teams were moving. It's like, this is not new. However, it feels like the moves that have been made in recent years are a little bit more significant because it appears as though two leagues in particular are starting to pull away. But we figured in an effort to maybe ease or elevate the concerns of the teams that are on the move, we'd look back at what some teams have done early on in their transition. So we picked out a whole bunch of teams that have moved in the past, and we want to look at their relative success depending on exactly how they did when they first made that move and where they're at right now upon having made that move in some cases decades down the road. Let's start with the teams that have won national championships. Let's start with the Penn State Nittany Lions. Of course, they moved to the Big Ten after being an independent for quite a while. And Penn State, look, long storied history, tremendous success under Joe Paterno, unrivaled as far as the amount of championships they've won as an independent. Did a great job as far as all that is concerned. They, of course, moved to the Big Ten, and while they went undefeated in 1994, they've really never gotten close to winning a national championship since. They've 
10 times finish ranked in the top 10. But national championships, they haven't really been within striking distance. Now, I can remember a handful of times in which they were playing in New Year's Six Bowl games. I remember when they were playing in BCS Bowl games. I can remember them having great performances in BCS Bowl games. But isn't the goal, if you're a team and a program that had traditionally been in the mix for national championships, isn't the goal to continue that tradition? Well, unfortunately for Penn State, since they've joined the Big Ten, those opportunities have been few, they're few and far between. I'll also say this about Penn State. I'm kind of optimistic about what they might be in 2023, but how wide is the gap right now in your eyes? Answer this question on our social media at Always College Football, A, Always CFB. Help me understand, like, how close do you think Penn State is to catching the likes of Michigan and Ohio State? Are they really close or is the gap somewhat considerable? They're one of the teams that have had success since moving to the Big Ten, but maybe not the same levels of success that they had prior to joining the league. Let's move next to Miami. Probably one of the best examples of a team that has somewhat disappointed since aligning with the ACC. We know what they were prior to joining the ACC. They were a fixture in the BCS. They were constantly in the run for national championships there in the early 2000s. The Big East was gettable. Let's just be real. The Big East was extremely gettable, and they dominated it for quite a while. Now, since moving to the ACC, they put them in what division? The Coastal. Why did they do that? Because they anticipated Miami every single year being in the mix for a national championship. And they anticipated Miami basically dominating the ACC. And that just hasn't come to fruition. They've had one 10-win season in the last 20 years. Well, roughly 20 years. They joined the ACC in 2004. One 10-win season since joining the league. And what was at one point maybe the most talented team in the country for a two or three year span. They haven't even sniffed that level of talent recently. And it doesn't appear as though they're going to do so here in really anytime soon. I I'm optimistic that they will be competitive in the ACC, but man, where are the Miami teams of 2000, 2001, 2002, et cetera. They are a long and distant memory. So another team that relatively speaking, since realigning, hasn't exactly had the success that they had prior to the realignment. Let's go next to Nebraska, one of the most infamous examples of a team that has fallen on hard times after what was a ridiculously successful run there at multiple times during the course of the 20th century. In the 90s, it was as if, man, if Nebraska lost a game, keep the football because nobody ever anticipated it coming to fruition. They've been terrific and thought might be able to continue being terrific. After all, I mean, they fired Bo Pelini after winning nine games a year for however many years in a row there in the mid-2000s. But now we're looking at a Nebraska team that since leaving the Big 12, they've actually struggled to be consistent whatsoever. I mean, since joining the Big 10 in 2011, they've had just one 10-win season and are now on their fourth full-time head coach with tons of transition, and many have wondered and guessed, hey, is Nebraska ever going to get back? Is Nebraska ever going to be capable of competing with the big dogs in college football yet again, given the state of the program right now? 
I happen to think they made the perfect hire in Matt Rule in an effort to try to get more out of the roster that they currently have. Matt Rule's done that at Temple. He's done that at Baylor. I have full confidence that he'll be able to do that at Nebraska as well. But will they win another national championship? And as the Big Ten does away with divisions, the Big Ten West, all the teams that have been living in the Big Ten West, their slate is going to get a whole heck of a lot more difficult because they're not going to be able to beat up on the likes of each other now. Now they're going to have to compete against both Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State. They're going to have to compete against the Big Four to get to the conference championship game. Whereas over the last 10 years, since they abandoned Legends and Leaders, all they had to do was beat up on their Western counterparts and they could find their way. Nebraska has really struggled since joining the Big Ten. Let's go next to Colorado. And there's several factors as to why Colorado hasn't really been that successful since aligning with the Pac-12. They had that big issue as far as recruiting. They were put on probation. All the the black cloud that hung over Boulder there in the mid-2000s, that certainly played its part. But they haven't even been close to the same team since abandoning the Big 12. Just one 10-win season since joining the Pac back in 2011. And Coach Prime... He's the fifth head coach in that span. Now, there have been years where they might have been better than what people might have originally thought. Like 2020, pretty good. Obviously not a full season. So difficult to really give them a gold star for their performance in 2020. You look back, Mike McIntyre had moments where it's like, man, they're going to break through. Colorado might be back only to fall on hard times within a calendar year. Colorado, since joining the Pac-12, has never been able to consistently put it all together. Yeah, there have been moments, but they have not happened often enough. And hopefully, hopefully, for Colorado, Coach Prime can provide the answers. Let's go next to Arkansas. These are all teams, by the way, that have won national championships, as you can probably gather with some of the teams that we've put together in this big list. Arkansas, of course, joined the SEC back in the early 90s. Since then... They've had three 10-win seasons since 1992. Prior to joining the SEC, when they were in the Southwest Conference, they had nine 10-win or more seasons in the Southwest Conference. Now, of course, they switched into the SEC, and the challenges that exist in the SEC have been far more difficult. And to add insult to injury, one benefit that Arkansas always had was being able to go into the state of Texas and say, hey, do you want to play Southeastern Conference football? Many kids, especially in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, were moved by that opportunity. Hey, guess what? Come to Arkansas. It's the closest place. So a lot of guys from Texas found their way up to Arkansas there in the mid-2000s. Guess what? Texas A&M then entered the league in 2012, and Arkansas has had a very difficult time being consistent from that point forward. And now to make things even more difficult, in comes Oklahoma and in comes the Texas Longhorns. So it's going to be very difficult, I think even more so for Arkansas to continue to preach, hey man, come up to Arkansas. We play great football in the SEC. Whereas when you tell a Texan, hey, you can go to Texas. Hey, you can go to A&M. They might be more willing to stay at home than they were to go to a place that once was able to take advantage of their geographical location 
relative to the state of Texas and prey on kids that really wanted to play in the Southeastern Conference. Of course, we referenced it. The challenges for Arkansas have been very real over the course of the last three decades. Maryland, since they've moved from the Big Ten, from the ACC to the Big Ten, they've had just three winning seasons since 2014. And if you look at those winning seasons, they haven't exactly been super impressive. Most of the time, seven and six, eight and five. They haven't really been able to put their best foot forward. But the good news, like we talked about a moment ago for Nebraska, how Nebraska's schedule and slate is going to get much more difficult once we abandon divisions in the Big Ten. Guess what? For Maryland, it's going to get a little bit more manageable. They're now going to be able to play against the likes of some of their Western counterparts, and they won't have to run the gauntlet on an annual basis. The only game that was a guaranteed win, at least in the last handful of seasons for Maryland, was Rutgers. And I know Rutgers has even played them really difficult as well at times over the last handful of years. So Maryland is in one of those situations where, my goodness, the getting rid of divisions cannot get here soon enough because having to run your head against a brick wall that is the big four in the Big Ten East has been very difficult as they've made that transition in the last eight years. Next, it's Texas A&M. Yes, they won the Heisman Trophy back in 2012. Yes, they finished in the top five back in 20 when they went 9-1, and one, their one loss coming against the eventual national champion Alabama Crimson Tide. But Texas A&M, while it was really fun to watch during the early parts of their SEC tenure, the results in the last handful of seasons have been a bit of a mixed bag. Now, there have been moments where you feel like, all right, here comes A&M. They're about to break through because of the talent on the roster, but they've been very up and down. And here's hoping that Jimbo Fisher, with some of the hires that he's made in the offseason and some of the turnover that they've had on the roster, here's hoping that they'll be a little bit more consistent and a little bit better in the years to come. Let's move next to South Carolina. Another team that joined the SEC. You'll notice with Arkansas, you'll notice with Texas A&M, you'll notice with South Carolina, there have been moments that are terrific. Think about the Steve Spurrier era. Think about that period in which they dominated their in-state rival in Clemson there for a handful of consecutive years. You think about the 11-win seasons there in the early 2010s. But really, other than that, man, it has been kind of up and down. And yes, while there was a time or two in which it felt like Will Muschamp might break through, it just hasn't happened with any semblance of consistency. Now, it appears as though Shane Beamer, remember, he was on the staff under Steve Spurrier back in the early 2010s. He was the recruiting coordinator. It looks like his hire is paying early dividends, especially as far as how they're performing on the recruiting trail. And it's now become a fairly attractive place for guys that are trying to find their next home in the transfer portal. He's done a really good job of putting South Carolina back on the map. But we're still talking about a coach that has played well at times, but on other times, played really poorly. You can remember a time or two last year. Yes, you can point to the high points. Yes, Clemson. Yes, Tennessee. But you can also point to some low points last year for the South Carolina Gamecocks as well. However, it does feel like things are getting better there in Columbia, South Carolina. Those are the teams that have won national championships. And if you notice, all those teams that I just referenced have all struggled to make the transition. I'm talking over the course, in some cases, over the last 30 years. Now, you're going to say, well, struggle? I mean, goodness gracious alive. Like, Arkansas has done pretty well. South Carolina's done pretty well. Yes, I agree with all of that. Miami 
has even had moments in which they've been really good. Penn State had just won a Rose Bowl less than a month and a half ago. So yes, there have been really bright moments, but when the bar is what it is for those programs prior to joining the league that they're currently in, it definitely looks a little bit different in the new league when compared to what it looked like prior to joining the new league. Here's some teams that have had some success, okay? TCU. Yes, when moving from the Mountain West, remember they had that cup of coffee in the Big East and then ultimately found their way into the Big 12. It's been a seamless transition for them. Yeah, it took a year or two for Gary Patterson to figure out how best to attack the opposing teams in the Big 12, but he did eventually figure it out. They've won the conference a handful of times. And if you look, really look at everything, they just played for the national championship. They have constantly been a fixture in the top 25. And really, if you look at it over the course of Gary Patterson and now Sonny Dykes' tenure, they've had several times in which they've been in the top five, top six, top seven, top eight within striking distance of either a New Year's Six Bowl game or within striking distance of the college football playoff. See 2014 as the best example of that. Let's also talk about Virginia Tech. And while when we look at what's gone on in the last couple years, I acknowledge that everything that went on under Justin Fuente and what's gone on so far under Brent Pry, there's still some things that I'm still not 100% sure about as far as what's coming for the Hokies. But, and I say that with a big capital B, when they transitioned from the Big East to the ACC, they were really successful. They've had nine, that's right, nine 10-win seasons since joining the ACC in 2004. That's pretty dang impressive. When you compare that to what's happened with the Miami Hurricanes, pretty stark contrast in the consistency and success that we've seen in Blacksburg, Virginia, when compared to the consistency and lack of success, relatively speaking, that we've seen with Miami. So I think Virginia Tech is one of those programs that made that transition seamless. Let's talk quickly about Florida State. I don't need to tell you a whole lot about what Florida State's done since joining the ACC. They were ranked in the top five how many consecutive years? They won how many national championships? Florida State, since transitioning to the ACC, has been one of the best success stories we've ever seen in the sport. And given what they're doing right now with Mike Norvell, and knowing that the ACC divisions are completely, completely disheveled in my eyes, I don't think you can have... Clemson and Florida State, who appear at the moment poised to really break through, they've been in the same division for quite a while. Now, Florida State fell on hard times at the end of Jimbo Fisher's tenure, at the beginning of what was a kind of a state of transition early in Mike Norvell's tenure, and of course, the two years that were turbulent under Willie Taggart. Florida State certainly had better years, but you can't deny the success that they've had since joining the ACC. They've been terrific for the most part over the last handful of decades. And then finally, the Missouri Tigers. A lot of people would say, well, hang on a second. Well, Missouri, how, how, how are you coming up with them? You just cited earlier in the show that Texas A&M has had a difficult time transitioning. I know that Texas A&M, for the most part, has not had the consistent success that they would want to have. And they'll they're going to say, well, we're in the big, we're in the SEC West, we're in the the better division, we're in the tougher division. 
while that's 100% true, we've seen Missouri go not once but twice to the SEC championship game. And if Missouri were in the SEC West, would they have comparable success? The answer is no, at least not in the last decade. But can you honestly say that Missouri has had less success in the SEC than Texas A&M? I think it's a fair question. People are going to say, well, hang on a second. Look at the win-loss record. Look at, look, at the, look at the turnover. Look at all this other stuff. One team has been to the top of the mountain in the SEC. That would be Missouri. You can say, well, they were a byproduct. They were a lesser of many evils in the, big, in the SEC East. Fine. They still got there. And I think they backed it up the following year by getting there again. So having been to the SEC championship game, I think Missouri, their transition, albeit rocky and somewhat sometimes tumultuous, has been okay relative to their counterparts that joined at the same time in Texas A&M. One thing that I noticed about the four teams that we deemed to be, quote, successful, they all had a long-tenured coach prior to moving into a new league. TCU had Gary Patterson. Prior to joining the Big 12, he had been at TCU for 10-plus seasons up to that point. Florida State, Bobby Bowden. He had been, obviously, at Florida State for quite a while prior to joining the ACC. We all know at Virginia Tech, you had Frank Beamer. As they transitioned from the Big East to the ACC, he was able to ease that transition. And then Missouri had Gary Pinkle. As they made that transition from the Big 12 to the SEC, they had a guy that knew what success looked like and understood his place better than that of many others. That goes on to say, for the four teams that will be on the move here in 2024, Steve Sarkeesian, when he makes the transition, will be in year number four. You look at what's going to go on at USC, Lincoln Riley, he, when he makes the transition, he'll be in year number three. You look at what's going on with Oklahoma, Brent Venables will be in year number three. And then finally, Brian Kelly, or excuse me, Chip Kelly, he will have been at that point in year number eight. So he will be by far the longest tenured coach as he makes the transition to the Big Ten. So looking back, and I'm not saying history is always a bona fide indicator. It's not. But one would assume, based on track record and the teams that have had success in the past making a transition, having a long-established, long-tenured head coach as you make that transition might lead to better success as you transition to a new league. So I'm not saying UCLA is going to have more success than their other three counterparts that are now moving. But based on what we've seen in recent history, one would lead you to believe that they might be able to transition a little better than some might think. Macro, you mentioned Penn State, Miami, and Nebraska. And, you know, think back to when they were changing leagues and going in. Did anybody think that they would fall on the hard times? I mean, not Penn State, but specifically Nebraska and Miami, that they'd fall on these times. These were blue buds. These were, what do they have, 10 national championships between them? I mean, to think where they are now, looking at Oklahoma and looking at Texas, you know, Texas has one 10 win season since Mac Brown left. Oklahoma's coming off their first losing season this century, you know, as, as fans of those programs that get, would they, anybody be concerned going in? Like, are we going to fall on that? Is that something that they really need to think about? 
I think it's always something to be concerned about, right? I mean, I think everybody assumes that if you're a dominant program, you're going to stay a dominant program. But think about some of the teams and the programs that have fallen by the wayside in the last two decades. There was a point in time in the last 20 years where it legitimately felt like USC was never going to lose a game. There was a point in time in the last 22 or three years that it literally felt like Miami was never going to lose a game. There was a point in time in which you felt like Florida State was well-positioned for a consistent run at the college football playoff and or national championships. Everything about college football is cyclical. I'm a believer in that. Yes, there are some programs that can withstand the test of time, regardless of who the coach is, regardless of who the quarterback is, regardless of who the personnel is on the team. They just continue to recruit and attract players at a really high level, and they continue to have consistent success. But that is not the norm. The norm is reverting back to the mean and then coming down, maybe hitting rock bottom before resurrecting yourself. So if you look at Nebraska, if you look at Miami, I am really optimistic they can get back. Why? Because they've been there before. Does it mean it's going to happen overnight? And does it mean that their success or their run is going to last as long as it did back in the 90s or Miami's case in the early 2000s or the late 80s? Uh, I don't necessarily know that. But I happen to think if you were at one point a great program, you can be a great program again. I really believe that. It just takes the right coach at the right time to be able to wake up the echoes and get them back to the top of the game. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day. But sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. All right, news and notes that have gone down here in the last couple of days for college football. Todd Munkin has officially taken the offensive coordinator position with the Baltimore Ravens. Shouldn't come as a huge surprise. His background has been in the NFL, and given the challenges like we've talked about on this program before, being a coordinator in the NFL the quality of life is a whole heck of a lot better than what college football coordinators are asked to do right now. The round-the-clock recruiting, it's for the birds, at least in the eyes of many. When you look at what they did as they went through the process of finding a replacement, and when I say process, I use that a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I think it took about seven minutes for them to determine that Mike Bobo was ultimately going to be the successor to Todd Munkin. Now, this has been met by a lot of people with a little bit of hesitation. Some people have rolled their eyes. Some people have said, really, it's an interesting choice because Mike Bobo 
most recently, whether it be his stops at both South Carolina or prior to that, or excuse me, at just after that with the Auburn Tigers, it hasn't really felt great in recent years. But I must go back. I mean, people are citing, and I've seen people that I respect and people that I really like in the industry, they're kind of picking up some low-hanging fruit when assessing whether or not Mike Bobo will be successful. They're pointing to his year in 2020 when he was at South Carolina. He was supposed to resurrect that South Carolina offense, and they kind of limped to the finish line in a two-win season with the 98th-ranked scoring offense. And then, to take it one step further, he decides to go to Auburn. He was there for just one year, and clearly there was a little bit of a friction between him and the head coach, Brian Harson with how things wanted to go. He returned to Georgia in an analyst role and has been right there developing the relationships with the players that are likely to be competing for the quarterback position. And he's been watching how Todd Munkin puts together his offensive plan. And while I don't think you can just wave the magic wand and just replace Todd Munkin without any issues whatsoever, Todd Munkin was sensational the last few years. Did a great job with developing Stetson Bennett. Did a great job of creating matchup problems for his best weapons. Did a great job of marrying run and pass. Did a great job of continuing to preach physicality along the line of scrimmage in an ever-changing RPO-centric offense. He did a great job. I love what Todd Munkin did. But why do we think Mike Bobo can't do the exact same thing that Todd Munkin did? Are we pointing to some of his previous stops? Sure. Are we pointing to some of the quotes that he's had over the course of time about saying, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of tempo offense? Sure, we can point to those things. But we can also point to where Georgia is right now with their program and the pedestal that they currently reside on. Georgia's in a position where they're going to hopefully, for them, win a third consecutive national championship. The best thing that Georgia's had going for them in the last handful of years has been continuity with their coordinators. And yes, you can point to, well, you know, they just lost their coordinator from last year. Dan Lanning decided to go to Oregon to become the head coach. That's fine. Like, okay, a little bit of turnover there, but guess who's still there? Glenn Schumann, who was on staff, and Will Muschamp, who was on staff. So it worked defensively this year. You lose a great coordinator who got a chance to become a head coach. You promoted from within and the defense didn't skip a beat at any point in 2022. If it worked on defense, why would you not at least try it on offense? Mike Bobo's been there. He understands the personnel. He understands the terminology. He understands how to make this transition as smooth as humanly possible. And if Georgia needed a shot in the arm because their offense really wasn't that good last year, then I would have questions about whether or not Mike Bobo was the right man for the job. But since Georgia just needs to keep the status quo, I love that they kept the search internal. I think it makes a ton of sense. And I think it's going to pay dividends with the relationship that's already been built between Mike Bobo and the three quarterbacks that will be vying for the position here in 2023. 10 seconds on the clock. How many things can you name that are always growing? Your relationships, your skills, your customer base. How about businesses on Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. 
from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash network, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash network now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash network. Now, let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac, weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue and ready for the play. And boom! Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good! The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic Liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. All right, moving next to Miami. They've been popular on our shows recently. I feel like we've talked more about Miami than just about any program it feels like, and rightfully so. We documented already how we feel about Lance Guidry, who I think is going to do a great job on the defensive side as their defensive coordinator. Did an amazing job at Marshall with their third down defense, and I thought he was a steal for Tulane. Nobody seemed to hire this guy, and then sure enough, Miami caught caught whiff of, of what exactly he does, and they brought him to be the leader and the architect of their defense moving forward. I think it's a great move. But not to be outdone, you go and get a coordinator at Houston and Shannon Dawson that has done a pretty dang good job there in H-Town for the Cougars. Now, a lot of people will wonder, okay, what was his involvement in the offense? Of course, did he call plays? Was Dana Holgerson heavily involved? Like, how did that whole thing work out? I, I can't answer all the specifics as to it was his show, he was running it, he was calling it, he was diagramming it, he was planning it, whatever. I can't answer those specifics. But what I can tell you is that three of the last four years, he's been the OC and the quarterback coach. Houston's thrown 87 touchdowns in that time frame. That's the 13th most in the FBS since he took over as the offensive coordinator. And I look at what Miami was last year. And if we want to go back just one year before that, I look at what Tyler Van Dyke was when Rhett Lashley was calling the plays. You know whose offense is somewhat similar to Rhett Lashley? Shannon Dawson. If you don't believe me, go check out the Houston against SMU game this past year. You might need five hours, though, because that game was a high-scoring affair. Okay, You look at what Miami was last year. Josh Gaddis tried to implement an offense that really didn't best accentuate what Tyler Van Dyke had had success with the year before. As a result, after scoring 100 points in the first two games, they did overpower Bethune, Cookman, and Southern Miss. That's great, but they averaged just 18 points a game the rest of the way. They finished the year 5-0 and in, or games in games in which the defense allowed no more than 14 points, but 0-7 when the opponent got over 14. So I'm a big believer in Shannon Dawson because I think their offense – while it has air raid principles, they don't completely abandon the run. I think it's a nice, solid, complementary tempo style that should bring out the best in Tyler Van Dyke and hopefully bring out the best in some of the playmakers that Miami's hoping to rely on here in 2023. And then, why wouldn't we pair these two teams up? Let's move next to Notre Dame. They've officially hired Gerard Parker as their offensive coordinator. Now, there were a ton of rumors 
surrounding the Notre Dame offensive coordinator hiring process. They looked at Sean Lewis, who was formerly of Kent State, but currently the OC, just been there for a month or so at Colorado. They looked at Andy Ludwig, who, of course, long documented you know, uh, how far down they were recruiting him at a basketball game. And then they realized, well, the buyout might be too much. I'm not sure we'll ever have the whole story there, but I thought that was a very weird situation with Andy Ludwig. I'd love to get the whole story at some point. I just don't have it right now, but the buyout was prohibitive. Really? I mean, you're Notre Dame. Come on, man, find some bucks and make it happen. If he is supposedly your guy, and then they also take a look at Kansas State Wildcat offensive coordinator Colin Klein, who, of course, has excelled in the quarterback run game and did a great job this past year with Kansas State leading an offense that ultimately went on to win the Big 12. But whatever version of the Ludwig story you look at or whatever version of the truth that you want to kind of read through as far as this offensive coordinator hire is concerned, this one to me just... I really don't know. I'd love to tell you, hey, Parker's going to come in. He's going to run this style of offense. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. I happen to think because he coached underneath Tommy Reese as the tight ends coach, I happen to think there's going to be an awful lot of carryover from last year. I can't imagine they're going to reinvent themselves philosophically. I think Notre Dame's going to continue to lean heavily on the run game. I think they're going to lean heavily on the play-action passing attack. And hopefully they'll still continue to feature their tight ends. After all, they're hiring their tight ends coach to call the play. So something tells me that group's still going to get plenty of looks. But I can't tell you at this point what this offense is going to look like. We're going to scout heavily in spring football to get a good feel for what the Irish might be. But at this point, it's kind of a shoulder shrug hire because of some of the names that were previously associated with the position. And it's not even so much on Marcus Freeman. And it's certainly not a reflection of Gerard Parker. He might be great. I hope he is. But I don't like the way Notre Dame handled this situation. A very public recruitment of Andy Ludwig only to go sideways when it sounded like the money in his buyout at Utah was too much. That's not something you ever want public. You don't want that to be out there because now it's pretty easy to recruit against Notre Dame. You just say, hey man, these guys wouldn't pay $2.8 million to get Ludwig out of his deal. How committed are they to winning? I don't know if recruits will listen, but I can promise you there will be other coaches that are using that on the trail themselves. So I didn't like the way this has all been handled, but hopefully for Notre Dame, hopefully for Sam Hartman, and hopefully for Irish fans everywhere, he's the right man for the job, even though many people aren't exactly fired up about the move. In an effort to get you out of here on time, we try to keep things a little bit tighter in the offseason. We don't want to put you over 30 minutes. Unfortunately, we went over 30 minutes today. We just had a lot to unpack as we talked about teams that are in transition. But either way, we're going to get back to the mailbag. We didn't have a chance today. Thought we might, but... We're going to save those for Monday. So check back on Monday's edition of Always College Football. Maybe your question will be featured. And when you send those mailbag questions in, tell us your name and tell us where you're from so we can give you a little bit of love as well. Alwayscollegefootball at gmail.com. You can also submit questions via our social media at alwayscfb on Instagram and on Twitter. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Jack Foster, for Jake, for Mark Kubiak, I'm Greg McElroy. We hope you have a wonderful weekend. And remember, it's always college football.